and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for May 2012. I am writer-critic-crowdfunded-passion-project Lee Zachariah and with me as always is... Hi there, I'm uh, writer-director-can-competition-entrant Paul Anthony Nelson and with us today is our very special guest... Yeah, I'm Cerise Howard. I am a hyphenate, I expect. Um, if I were to give some thought to it or I had prepared something earlier, I'd tell you... <laughs> exactly how multidisciplinary a creature I am. I'll give it some thought very quickly. Uh, I'm a critic, a musician, a checkerphile, uh, possibly very shortly a film festival uh, programmer again, or conductor or president or some such, all to be confirmed. Uh, early days. Um, might be related to my checkerphilia, as mentioned just moments ago. Um, and I am a public servant and um, probably a few other things besides which escape me at the moment. That is a decent list. That might That's be a right. record for someone we've had on uh, the amount of hyphens. Now, I, I need to make a quick administrative note. Normally, we don't do this kind of thing, but you're on, here on a very special day, Cerise, because this is our second anniversary. Congratulations, guys. I'm very, very proud to be a part of this, this special day. Two years. They said we'd never make it. Actually, no one said that. I bet they were yeah. thinking it. I yeah. could tell on their faces. I don't think people cared whether we'd make it. Um, well, there's that too. There'll be gift bags as you are exit. Sorry. The first time we had a guest on was uh, Thomas Caldwell way back in uh, 2010 talking about Mr. Tim Burton. And the last film we spoke about when we were talking about that is Alice in Wonderland. Now, Burton's made Dark Shadows. Can I just say right now, that's possibly my favourite of your segues ever. I wondered what that thumbs up was about. Yeah. I think. Um, that was... Did you just come up with that or was yeah. that planned? No, no. That, no. Was, that was great because normally they're really lame, but that was awesome. Thank you. That's um, both complimentary and mildly patronising. <laughs> Dark Shadows is the new Tim Burton uh, film. Now, I don't know what you guys thought of it. I do think there are cheaper ways for Burton to audition for Chuck Lorre. <laughs> I think if he really wants to direct Two and a Half Men or The Big Bang Theory, he could probably... There's probably an easier way to do Ow. it rather than spend $150 billion <laughs> making a film with no tangible jokes in it. Interesting. I, I don't see the link, but go on. Oh, just uh, the jokes... I felt were of a two and a half men Mike and Molly standard where they were just all falling flat. There's no real punchline to any of them. It's just people being wacky and delivering lines that in a humorous way, but are not actually funny. That's, that's how, that's how it felt to me. Look, I liked it a little more than that. I, I think it did have jokes in it, but they were kind of dad jokes. It was, and, and, and it was almost, it was kind of a Cosby sweater of a film for oh, the first half. Geez. And I was kind of okay with that. <laughs> it was kind of sweet. And then it suddenly turns into the supernatural Fantastic Four and this giant FX superhero battle of mm. vampires and other creatures of the night. And then, and then it tacks on this, it sort of goes, oh, by the way, we va vaguely hinted at a love story early in the film. Let's make people care. And it, it just, the second half is horrible. Um, completely agree. But the first half I was kind of with, although it's a difficult first half to defend because there are so many plot holes. I like the fact that she's the whole film is established via the girl getting a job as a governess to the, to the young boy, mm. and then we never see her actually do that. We never see them in a scene together. Really. <laughs> yeah, uh, look, it's if there's lot. one thing the Avengers and shortcuts have taught us, it's that you can have many different characters in a film together acting against each other and have their own plot lines and still feel balanced at the end of this. This one felt like 
they'd introduced about 20 different plots and none of them were given the time they needed. Yeah. And is there also a, a horribly overbearing Danny Elfman soundtrack? It's not as overbearing as some of his others. Because yeah. um, that's the triumvirate. Yeah, <laughs> the, the Burton Depp Elfman thing has become so cliche. That, yeah. yeah. It just fills me with dread thinking about seeing another film with that particular combination. Well, don't know. I'm sure they've only got 20 or 30 years left of those collaborations left, <laughs> and then they'll be done. All right, speaking of people that we think should go away, but in a very different different way, Mel Gibson is back. Yes. Get the Gringo mm. is his new film. Co-wrote. Co-produced. Uh, co-produced, stars in. Yeah. Despite myself, I kind of liked it. I gotta say, it was something we don't see often in action these days. It was genuinely gritty and kind of propulsive and had a pretty strong, pretty solid plot line like the, it was actually pretty well constructed and this is the thing that kind of knocked me for six was set in a in a milieu if you like in a setting that i hadn't seen before outside of a sci-fi film like escape from new york yeah. um gibson's character being sent to this mexican prison which is like a city that has its own ecosystem mm. and has its red light district and has a playground for kids on weekend this bizarre kind of corrupt prison town i thought mm. that was fascinating Gibson's character doesn't have to be likable. Like, his character is, you know, he's a kind of a hard-bitten, you know, noir-style asshole. Mm -hmm. And the film goes to some fairly harsh places at times, and the relationship with between Gibson and the kid is never really overplayed or never played for schmaltz. And I, I dug the hell out of this film, and I really didn't think I would. Mm. I really enjoyed it too. Um, uh, you, you, his character's established very early on, um, I was actually a little hesitant at the very beginning because voiceover, I always worry that a voiceover is going to run throughout an entire film. And for me, that usually kills pretty well any film. There aren't many exceptions. There's certainly none that come immediately to mind. I, I really struggle with... Sunset Boulevard. Oh, Sunset Boulevard. Shawshank. Yeah. <laughs> but even then, you know, it's not... Constant. Those are exceptions yeah. to the rule, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, that proves the rule. <laughs> well, proves, exception we know exception that, that proves, that's how yeah, rules that's and exceptions work, <laughs> of course. I guess. He establishes his character, I think, more through the voiceover than through uh, deeds at the beginning. We, we sense he's more of a desperado than he, in fact, will turn out to be because we later learn that he's, in fact, incredibly resourceful and knows how to play everyone off against everyone else. Yeah. Gibson's become increasingly unlikable for any number of fairly well-publicised reasons, but his screen persona here works again. Yeah. So uh, good luck to him if he can somehow redeem himself, perhaps with a string of films of this strength. That would be terrific. Mm, and maybe some, you know, uh, racial sensitivity training. But as much as I enjoyed <laughs> Get the Gringo, in terms of films set in prison of this month, it was a second to The oh. King of Devil's Island. I, I have to agree with you. Um, as much as I thoroughly enjoyed Get the Gringo, uh, I think King of Devil's Island is possibly my favourite film I've seen this month. Mm. It's oppressive and stark and really, really quite affecting at times. Uh, the story of a young, uh, a young uh, Norwegian boy who gets sent to a, a boy's home on an island. There's all, they, a true story. Too. Yeah, a true yeah. story in 1917. And they always make the effort. The characters are always sort of saying, this is, you could be here or prison, but there's really very little difference. Mm. Um and basically, it's, it's Cool Hand Luke set mm. in 1910s Norway. Mm. Uh, it's, a, it's a similar kind of thing, a, you know, a mis slightly mysterious recidivist type inmate is, uh, decides to 
you know, first is focused completely on his own escape, and then vir- by virtue of his own individualism, ends up liberating everyone else. But the film shows some really remarkable restraint at times too. Mm. Like it, it eludes to so much and shows relatively little, uh, which I which I thought was a real plus. Yeah. Um, because I think the atmosphere is stark enough to kind of put us in mind of the harshness of the whole thing. Mm. And the other was hugely effective. Now, according to my notes, I've seen Men in Black 3. Uh, <laughs> that's the only indication I have in my memory. of. Look, it's not as bad as Men in Black 2, but then neither is Syphilis. Uh, it's not quite as good as Men in Black 1. It's just kind of there. It's like, it, it's obviously, it's got a very fraught uh, behind-the-scenes story, which is that they kept reshooting and reshooting, and apparently... And it feels really stuck together and hodgepodge. You can see a story forming there when you watch it through and you go, okay, that's technically, it's got a beginning and middle and an end. I can see that emotional arc, but it still feels very piecemeal to me. Jeez, I thought I was the curmudgeon. Uh, (laughs) I actually had a lot of fun with this. Yeah. I, I think it was because I hated the second film so intensely that I didn't expect it. And this is the... A classic example of a who asked for this sequel. Like, why are we getting this film 10 years later? Like, who who cares about what's happening in the Men in Black universe anymore? And I've got to say, fundamentally, I still don't. But I, I, I think I just expected this to be such a rubbish film that when it turned out to be rather good-natured and kind of, I think it almost embraced its own anachronisms. Like, there's bizarre... Like, in the first five minutes, we have a cameo from Nicole Scherzinger of the... Um, the Pussycat Dolls, we have a joke reference, a line referencing Jerry Maguire, and it's almost like, damn, this thing should have been made 10 years ago. <laughs> and it almost embraces that kind of quaintness. It's like, yeah, we're out of step, we're out of date, but you know what? It's kind of, you know, we're just, it's all very good-natured. And then, I, But I think the film is a little clunky until Will Smith goes back in time mm. and meets Josh Brolin. And I think that's where the film kind of comes to life a little for me. I think Josh Brolin is wonderful in this. Well, he does a fantastic job. Again, I think you get everything you need from his impression from the trailers. But I think, but, but I see, I disagree. Great. I think him and Smith play off each other really well. And I think mm. as tired as Tommy Lee Jones looks in this one and kind of like, oh, I don't know if I really want to be here. I think once Smith and Brolin start playing off each other, it makes us remember the first one and remember how well Smith and Jones played off each other. Mm. And I think... I think there's a there's that kind of warmth between those two, and I think the relationship really works. And I think the end is telegraphed from a mile away, but I think it it's surprisingly sweetly done, and I think it loops the trilogy in Again, a, in a yeah, nice it's fine. kind like, of way. I think there are moments like that that are nice that make up for the moments that are just kind of there. Mm. So look, I'll look. Yeah, I'll pay that. What I won't pay <laughs> is films that coast through on. A concept. Uh, I'm talking of Iron Sky, which takes the idea of what if the Nazis had escaped the moon and now they're coming back. Like Dead Snow, (laughs) this relies on the premise rather than the script. Yeah, it's my whipping boy. Dead Snow is my whipping boy. Yeah, Dead Snow is a favourite of Mr. Zachariah. I had the pleasure of sitting next to him, stony faced, (laughs) at the MIF screen. (laughs) I forgot about that. It was amazing. Um, but it's just, it's just so inconsistent and poorly thought out. And like, it thinks it's being very, very clever and it, it, it's not at all. I mean, aside from the gigantic plot holes, which are unintentional, like the main girl doesn't know what a black man is, but knows everything about the serum used to convert black to white and white to black. Right. It's just, there are a lot of, a lot of things like that. It's totally inconsistent. I mean, Sarah Palin jokes, really? It's, yeah. Where, aren't we past that? And 
for a film that is meant to be sort of satire, satirizing racism, it's pretty racist. The lead black guy is the 21st century step and fetch it, pretty much. He's talking. Right. I mean, it's... oh, Anthony Anderson's in this. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Look, I, I hate this film. <laughs> it's one of the worst of the year for me. Wow. Well, I do like that it's come out in the same month as another one, The Dictator. Ah, oh, The Dictator. Iron Sky, no concept of satire. The Dictator absolutely does. I'm a huge fan of this film. I, I laughed like crazy, and that doesn't happen a lot. It wasn't until I was laughing in the cinema that I realized how rare it is for me to laugh at a comedy in a cinema. Uh, so on that alone, I give it plenty of points, but there are plenty of other reasons I give it points as well. I think this is very, very sharp satire. Its direct ancestor is The Great Dictator. Now... Before the angry letters come in, I'm a huge, huge fan of that film. It has obviously a very different approach, but then the dictator that Chaplin was satirizing is worlds apart from the dictator that Cohen is satirizing. Gaddafi and, and Hitler are two very, very different beasts, and Cohen and Chaplin have very, very different approaches, but ultimately, dic the dictator is very sharp, very satirical, and. Uh, it's hysterically funny. Yes, which is very important. I haven't la I haven't had as uh, an uproarious a time as this at the cinema in a long time, and I, I see there's someone who knows how to do bad taste properly as well, and also to take some genuine satirical shots at uh, not just obvious targets, and there are plenty of that mm. in the film because obviously when you're dealing with people like Gaddafi as inspiration, you've got a lot of material instantly, mm. and I think there's a few other dictators sort of conflated into that figure as well. Yeah, yeah, um, plays with a few. Yeah. yeah. Without making it abundantly clear that there's um, any particular religious affiliation attached to this guy, though you'd have to say there's a clear... There is, really. Um, you know, If you know a bit about your dictators, this guy is coming from the Islamic world. You oh, look well, at I his, think they, they very studiously avoided that. Cause, well, I think it's there. And you look at the architecture, oh. for example, of his palace, and yes. that's, that looks yeah, like I the Emirates Palace the, Hotel to the, me. The huge no, beard, yeah. the, the, the look. Well, they're the, playing with the dictator archetypes, but he very, I think he was very careful to avoid references to, to, to Islam. Specific and, references, yeah. but it's there. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, it's kind of unavoidable. If I you're going to make implied. fun of Gaddafi yeah. or any North African dictator, yeah. you can't get away from it. So I, do, I, I actually give him a lot of credit for avoiding anything that's like, aren't Muslims crazy? Yeah. He's not being specific and he's wise not to be too, but yeah. nonetheless, we can read between some lines there, I think. And dissenting opinion in three, two, Paul. You notice how I've been very quiet throughout so far, all this. Not for long. One uh, suspects. Yeah. Yeah. I think some of what I, I think what you're saying is completely valid, except for the bits where you're wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> look, I think I do agree that the Great Dictator is the closest progenitor to this, and that Cohen has much of the same intent in mind. Uh, you know, making a tyrant look silly and you know, and and uh, spoofing their approach to. Uh, dictatorship and I think early on he does it really well I think the film starts quite quite nicely and and uh, it refers to a lot of what we've seen of, of, of Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein and and various other tyrants and and uses those tropes really well then he goes to America and then the film kind of begins to fall apart now 
I think there's some genuine, genuinely genius ideas in this. You know, I love little things like him changing the language to make every other word Aladdin, and yeah. you have no idea what the hell anyone's saying because Aladdin means both good and bad, and <laughs> and and you know his his efforts to control the language in in such a vain way. Like ideas like that are fantastic. It's the bad taste stuff. It's the shock moments that just left me completely cold. I just don't, I don't find this kind of humour funny and I don't see the difference between this and Adam Sandler or Rob Schneider. It's the same jokes. I don't understand why we have to see a guy get shit on from above a building. Like, I think, if anything, the dictator started uh, kind of highlighted for me how, what a parlous state modern comedy is in these days because you look at the progenitors of this film are Duck Soup and The Great Dictator. The duck soup has dazzling wordplay, has gymnastic slapstick. The slapstick thing goes for great dictator and amazing characterization and some really poignant stuff. The dictator has rape jokes, him calling a girl a boy 47 times and shitting on someone from the top of a building. Now, where are we at? Come on. Like, okay. th- there's no satirical content in, like, in, particularly in the the... Joke. Like, there's no satirical content in that. that now, here's here's the the key point. And, and look, I don't mind. Look, everyone's humor is different. And if you, yeah. so, you know, if you don't find something funny, you know, I'm not going to argue that he's point. Better than this. Well, I don't think he is because when has he in his career has he not done crass, in your face humor? That's that's but his the career. In your face humor is different. Like on his TV work, and and I like, and I saw Bruno recently, and I think Bruno is actually my favorite. Of his films, it's very painful, awkward viewing. It's yeah. funny, right. very, very because funny. it's that whole thing yeah. about him getting in people, getting in bigoted people's faces yeah. and rubbing their fears, like like getting them close up to their fears and relishing it. And that's the Sasha Baron. And in order to generate satire, in order yeah. to show just how painfully fucked up the world is, and I think that's his strength. And that's what he did in his television work, and that's what he does in Bruno. I think there's, I think Borat's an uncomfortable mixture of both styles. This is his... The Dictator is kind of his Will Ferrell, Mike Myers movie. Mm-hmm. It's his... I, I put on a, you know, I put on a character and a face and do this sort of thing and maybe I play a double of myself and, you know, and, and, and fits it within a fairly conventional kind of comedy narrative. Yeah. And I don't think the style works for him. I think there's this temptation that it's a big screen effort. You need to build up the joke. So all of a sudden things get ten times more kind of vain like this sort of huge attempt to shock and i don't think and i'm not shocked or offended by any of it i just find it really tiresome and well okay the bruno like i'm a fan of bruno as well and i think uh we're being invited to laugh at bigots he is making fun of homophobes and we Mm. and we're on his side here this is i actually think this is a braver satire because we're the victims of his joke and this is something that sandler and schneider can't do he makes you were talking about the rape jokes. He makes a joke about somebody mentions the rape room to him, and he mm. says, "This is fantastic. Where is this rape room?" And because of what we've and heard it's like, allow about, me to get my smoking jacket or whatever. Like he makes some kind of reference about his preparations. Exactly. For Saddam the rape Hussein room. had rape rooms. Like that was what they called them. Mm. You could see where he's going with that, and that's very funny. And the audience bursts into laughter, even though it's a joke about rape. A moment the audiences later, today will often burst into laughter. Well, that's Cohen's point because a second later, he makes a joke about raping 14-year-olds, hmm. like within the same breath. And it's horrible and the audience goes quiet and he knows the audience is going to go quiet because he's just found your line. And 
what you're feeling in that moment is, hang on, I was just laughing at rape a moment ago. Why is this too far? I think scenes like that are very, very deliberate. And the joke is on us. There are other moments... So you're saying by not laughing at the first rape joke, I got the joke early? <laughs> you're, you're forgiven from... Uh, no, but... Um, but where, whereas I will grant you that there are scenes I think fall completely flat, like the uh, the Chinese ambassador. None yeah. of these scenes. I don't. Maybe there's satire in there that I'm not seeing, but I'm I can't find it, and I've been looking. Because see, I liked it when I liked the dictator's version of that because it showed how lonely he was and mm. how he sort of feels this. But then the Chinese ambassador's angle was just it just seemed pointless and it wasn't funny. And, and and yeah, there are bits that fall flat like that, but for me, the, the rest of it makes up for that. Uh, I found it tremendously enjoyable. Uh, and it's just pretty short too. So, mm. look, if it does outrage anyone, they needn't be outraged over long. Yeah. Obviously, they can also leave. There's always that option. He's great um, on keeping films short. Yeah, too. Yeah. All of his films have been 80-something minutes. But I think another thing to bear in mind is that uh, I don't think this is a, a, an artwork in itself in isolation. It's part of a, an, a more expansive performance art project. I mean, he appears in character when he's on the media circuit and terrorises um, hosts of TV shows who really ought to have known better than to ever have invited him on in the first place <laughs> in character, especially people on Australian breakfast television who really ought to have known much better and really got what they deserve. Yep, absolutely. Possibly the most awkward, uncomfortable uh, clip I've ever seen of um, breakfast television in Australia. And I'm sure there are plenty of rivals, but this is just blow... I'd have to blow them out of the water. So with the news that Martha Marcy May Marlene writer-director Sean Durkin is uh, making... His next project is a TV remake of The Exorcist, giving it a sort of a, a presumably more character-driven, longer-form kind of uh, retelling. What is the best approach? Like, what makes somebody remake a great film? I mean, there's always the the monetary brand recognition kind of imperative from a studio point of view, but I'm more interested from a filmmaking point of view. How best do you think a filmmaker should approach a remake of a great work? Well, I started looking at the best examples of remakes of great films because I think you've got... I, I like the, the George Clooney, Steven Soderbergh school of remakes, which is take a film that everyone thinks was good but wasn't, like Ocean's Eleven. Mm. Oh, I was really fearful you were going to say Solaris then and then I was going to have to come over and... <laughs> Actually, you, I think. Can I, but, can I tell you, that's a remake I love, even though I yeah. prefer I the actually, original. But this brings up your point, too. I mean, that's more an ad mm. a new adaptation of the book. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So it's, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, I mean, that's... Well, yeah, their, their Ocean's Eleven was, was a great way of doing that, but mm. there are a lot of good examples of great films being remade into great other great, great films. A lot of examples. There are quite I a few. I can think of a handful, and Cerise, thankfully, just provided one. <laughs> Solaris. <laughs> the fourth, I think, I could think of. Magnificent Seven remake yep. of Seven Samurai, yeah. as was A Bug's Life, which I, I think is great. The Departed, Infernal yeah. Affairs. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. The, the okay. 70s one, not the... Yeah. No, no, one. yeah. The, the, uh, ah, there's another, there's version. an Abel Ferrara remake That's of that right, too. yeah, there yeah. is. Um, uh, the Thing, Carpenter's I Thing. would argue the original wasn't a great film. Okay, and correct. same with The Fly. I, well, yeah, The Fly was one I had. Cape Fear is one. Mm. Two great films. Line Ball, whether the original's great. Uh, I'll call it, and yes, it is. <laughs> memorable at the least. It's definitely memorable. Fistful of Dollars. I mean, or half yeah. of what Leone did. Yeah. And looking at the ones that worked, I think what it is is a very strong authorial voice, a great director, writer, whoever finding a new spin on a classic tale and finding their own take on it. So they're not just looking at a property and going, how can we just 
um, spritz this up for a modern audience. They've got their own idea. Yeah, it's not, do we do the same film but with modern effects as yeah. the new remake of The Thing kind of did. Yes, exactly. Or even in the case of something like 12 Monkeys, you oh, get well, an original project and make it. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. and use the original as a jumping off point yeah. and create your own story. And, and that is yeah. an, an auteur film in its own right as well. I mean, mm. And no one's looking at La Jetée and going, this is a real marquee title, we have to exploit something. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's, it's obviously come from a very genuine place. Yes. Yeah. It was interesting with the recent news of the Magnificent Seven remake with, uh, with Tom Cruise. Everyone was quick to jump on the bandwagon on Twitter saying, before you, you start screaming heresy, remember Magnificent Seven, Seven is a remake of Seven Samurai, yep. which is true, but they're missing the key point, which is that Magnificent Seven put it in a different setting, gave it a different aesthetic, gave it a different feeling whilst retaining what worked for it. To remake Magnificent Seven without making those changes, which we can assume at this early stage, that if they're remaking that title instead of Seven Samurai, then they're going to make it a Western. I'm not especially against the idea, but at the same time, one of the things we admire about The Magnificent Seven is that it is a completely different spin on it. It's different characters, different different setting, different... Exactly. Yeah. Different uh, moral codes and stuff. My rule of thumb to approaching remakes and whether I'll see them was... I have to trust the filmmaker involved. Mm. So last year's The Thing that's made by some Norwegian or Danish or commercials director, I don't care. You give me The Departed made by Martin Scorsese, I'll go see that. Mm. And I kind of, that's what interested me about the Dirk and Exorcist idea. Because even though I revere The Exorcist and I think nobody should touch it with a 10-foot pole, A, it is a book, and B, Durkin is an immense talent. And given that most high-end cable-made TV is better than film these days, it could actually be really a fresh take and be a, a, a slow-burn, character-driven take on so it. So let's look at Todd Haynes and Mildred Pierce, for example. Mm. Yeah. Great example. Yeah. And, and Mildred Pierce was a, you know, was a great film at the time. I don't think all remakes are equal, but I think it, it's funny that every, virtually every remake you mentioned before was by a major filmmaker. Mm. All the good ones. I yeah. cannot tell you how filled with dread I am at the prospect of anybody, anybody at all, remaking Suspiria as has long been mooted and now looks actually set to happen with casting announcements made recently. And uh, I think it's David Gordon Green yeah. is the young indie hit kid yeah. who's been wanting to do this apparently for some time. And this is, for me, I mean, we, you often hear tell of the unfilmable novel. I think sometimes there's also the unremakeable film mm. and something as singular as Suspiria shouldn't just be left alone. Well, in that box Why is, would you do it? is the long-mooted Videodrome remake. Right. Why would you yeah. bother? Why, why? Well, at the same time, I mean, they've been talking about a remake of The Thin Man. Mm. Uh, I love the original and I've kind of got to a point of oversaturation with remake news where I'm now at a point where unless... Johnny Depp comes into my house and sets fire to my copy of the original Thin Man. He can do nothing to destroy it. Mm. He can do whatever he likes to it. I'm going to still have that box set of all those movies and I'm happy with that. So I've kind of, I, that's kind of how I'm approaching remake news. It's like, if it's good, it's good. If it's not, I'll ignore it. Whereas if it did, if there was a great filmmaker behind it, we would be a lot more interested, I think. Absolutely. Than, than Rob Marshall. Bless him. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Whereas, and I like Chicago, but Johnny Depp remaking the Night Stalker, directed by Edgar Wright. Yeah, I'm fully Ed on board with that. Yeah, Edgar Wright. Yeah, I'm there. That's because That's you, you can't ever doubt the man's sincerity. Mm. I don't know if you should move away from this because I think there are two films we have to talk about if we're talking uh, if we're on this subject, and 
one is Psycho and the other is Funny Games. Mm. There's no way of dodging either of these. These are the, the elephants in the room. Both are remakes by major auteurs. One's a remake of the auteur's own work, but made for Hollywood, which is what he always wanted. Michael Haneke had always wanted to make funny games to terrorise Hollywood audiences. He'd always wanted to play with them. Mm. I think that both of those films are extremely cruel, brilliant pieces of work. They're always going to be divisive because... A lot of even Haneke's greatest champions will sometimes still look at funny games and say, Well, it's just a stunt, it's you know, mm. but it's a pretty good one. But then, yeah, this whole business of Gus Van Sant and Psycho is a lot more interesting. And, he um, did have what I would describe as an authorial approach to it, mm. which he took was a liberty or two, he did. Um, but it was to screw with people by doing it shot for shot. Yeah. And while I admire his intentions. The result is one of those cases of, hey, once again, exception proves the rule. It feels like a photograph mm. of a great artwork, mm. you know, and just lack, I think in doing it exactly the same, you can see why he did it, but at the same time, it kind of lacks a little bit of that soul. Yeah. So in conclusion, remakes. <laughs> in conclusion, yeah, just let master filmmakers do remakes, that's it, and let the hacks do the, the hack work on, on other ones. Or get, in Soderbergh's case, get a master filmmaker to, you know, remake a hacky film. <laughs> Alright, Cerise, please tell us Whom have you picked for your Hellas for Hyphenids Filmmaker of the Month Well, I've picked Jan Schwankmeier Check Surrealist Animator Extraordinaire Check Check <laughs> Check that There'll be a lot of those Oh, good <laughs> <laughs> I do so enjoy Czech puns <laughs> so what? So I, I know you're a big fan of Czech cinema. What is it about Svankmaier that that speaks to you? Well, um, there's so much. In fact, I was exposed to his short work, short uh, short films, quite early in the piece through a combination of studying cinema at La Trobe in the early to mid '90s, as well as for SBS on occasion would screen shorts of his on each carpet, or they might run. Alice once in a while. Um, they may have run Faust a few times before in the past as well, I think. So two of his features of the six he's made to date. He mm. makes them several years apart. It takes a while to make one of his features because he has a lot of uh, obstacles as a rule. Um, not <laughs> everyone wants to fund uh, genuine surrealist investigations into the cinema. But that said, he's one of the more marketable and recognisable names uh, currently still working in the, the Czech film industry. Um, though his work would no doubt have had a lot greater trouble making it to our distant shores, if, or firstly, if there hadn't been for the Velvet Revolution in 1989, but also if some money from abroad hadn't uh, come his way, especially from England and from Channel 4 and from a couple of producers and Keith, mm. Grith, uh, Keith Griffiths and Michael Havas, who uh, enabled him to make features for the first time in 1988 with Alice and uh, five more since. He's made a lot of shorts. Extraordinary body of work there. 26 in total. That is impressive. Mm. And uh, 20, I think 21 of them before he made a feature. Yeah, and, and often in very, const uh, very strained circumstances. Um, some just before the Prague Spring, which was when there was a thawing of uh, totalitarianism there um, and leading to a whole wave of amazing filmmaking in the Czech Republic. That's the period I'm most interested in with cinema from um, well, Czechoslovakia as it was then. And that I must also say there are a lot of great Slovak filmmakers. We too often use that word Czech when we ought to be a little more expansive. Right. Hmm. Um, especially as even some of Schrankmeier's films were made 
in Slovakia rather than in Czech Republic, okay. um, or at least with Slovak assistance. Mm. Um, and then yeah, some films during the Prague Spring, and then the great majority between uh, that period of thawing, and then there was this period which was delightfully called normalization, <laughs> which is when uh, after the Soviets rolled the tanks into Prague and everything went to hell in a handbasket again. And there are periods where Frank Meyer well, even couldn't make films for several years. Well, there's a point, there is it, the mid to late 70s where yep. he went seven or eight Well, he just couldn't do anything he wanted. He still uh, sure. kept working in the industry, but for him also, his practice, his art practice, has never been about being a filmmaker exclusively. It's surrealism, is, it's not necessarily about any one medium. It's... Mm. What people often miss with surrealism is that it's not an aesthetic. It's not just about weird shit. It's just it's it's a way of life. It's a philosophy. It's a a means of probing uh, reality, the world we live in, and the world of dream, and where those worlds collide and blur. And so, it's any number of creative enterprises, often as a collective enterprise as well, not an individual uh, effort. So, I mean, auteur theory goes out the window with Schwankmeyer too. While I'm saying I'm here to talk about Jan Schwankmeyer, really we're talking about films he has realised in collaboration uh, in cahoots with a, a number of other surrealists, a number of other animators, because he often isn't the person manipulating the objects in his films himself, mm. uh, though he sometimes is. The the things that I noticed watching watching his shorts, uh, the, the the few I've seen, is that he has, and I mean this in a, as a compliment a juvenile view of the world mm. so there's there's a way that, that kids look at the world before you know their brains are sort of locked into how things work in that the environment is malleable and it's quite unsettling you can have the way food comes and goes out of your mouth is via an, a deep elevator shaft yeah uh, atrophy seems to be a big theme there's a constant theme of decay mm. like he's continually setting things and decaying uh, houses and uh, paint peeling off walls and which is why he's so drawn to Poe. He keeps doing yes. adaptations of Poe. Well, that that was uh, I believe the Poe. I mean, yeah, Poe's one of the gods of you know, one of the great precursors of surrealism, uh, one of the pantheon. But also at that time, uh, the regime would not let him make his own things. They would would approve literary works adapted mm. to films. That's part of the reason he made those the house fall of the house of Usher and. The Pit, the Pendulum, and Hope, which are nonetheless utterly extraordinary oh, short amazing. horror films. Pit and the Pendulum and Hope is yeah. just so tense. Yeah. It's had me kind of head. devastating, isn't it? Yeah. The Ostuary. Yes. Yes. That great. In two versions, because one was suppressed. Yes. One of the soundtrack versions was suppressed by the regime, too. Took a very dim view. Oh, yeah, look, I mean, that's a, a place I've been to and is every bit as astonishing as is depicted in the film. A, a bone chapel. Uh, a mad monk assembled thousands upon thousands of human bones into interesting piles and installations and an entire Schwarzenberg coat of arms <laughs> replete with uh, a crow um, pecking the eyeball of a marauding <laughs> Turk. There's a, a human chandelier there, a chandelier made with every bone from the human body represented. Mm. And then that's you know, it's a very oh, powerful documentary. The camera just whip pans all over that place. Mm. You just catch these fleeting glimpses of really quite matter-of-factly horrific things. Mm. Well, so as a, as yeah. a cranky tour guide kind yeah. of yeah. attempts to keep a school group under control, just yes. purely in voiceover, you never see them. In the suppressed yeah. version, yeah. 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 In the other version, some of uh, frequent collaborators, Denyek Lischke's beautiful music and a poem read at the beginning from another important uh, surrealist inspiration, Jacques Prévert. Dimensions of Dialogue, probably his best known. Yes, mm, sure. Yeah. Um, We'd be remiss not to mention that. Well, it would be because that's the film that 
let the world know that there was a mad genius animator, well, at least the one, um, yeah, yeah. operating in the then Czechoslovakia. That, that won the Grand Prix at the Annecy Festival that year. And everyone, whoa, where did this come from? Mm. No one had any idea that people were beavering away at this sort of thing mm. behind the Iron Curtain. For two decades. Yeah, and for, for two decades already. You know, that film heavily inspired by Archimbaldo, the, uh, a court painter to Rudolf II uh, in the 16th century. Archimbaldo made portraits of people around the court of Rudolf II using objects to make a sort of a gestalt representation of that person. So maybe a picture of Rudolf II made out of fruit and vegetables. Mm. Or he'd also do portraits of people in given professions using only the objects relating to their profession. So mm. a librarian might be made out of books. Mm. And yet the resemblance to the particular individual would be there nonetheless through yeah. this right. extraordinary assembly of objects. So Dimensions of Dialogue has those sort of uh, creations gobbling one another, spitting something out of that interaction, always something lesser, more decayed, as mm. you say, for, But... With the added con uh, subjects there that um, you know, any two ideas meet, something lesser emerges from their uh, intermingling. Pessimism and black humour is pretty rampant in yeah. all of Schwankmeier's work, even though there's such joy in it in a way. It's, but yes, it's always very pessimistic. Now, what's, what is obsession with food? Um, I know that as a young boy, Schwankmeier... Um, was force-fed. He was actually sent away to a camp uh, to be force-fed. There were camps for force-feeding um, difficult children with eating disorders. And I believe that was one of his early traumatic childhood episodes. Right. One of many. Because as, as you were saying too, Lee, he, childhood is such a big part of his cinema and, and evoking childhood and its horrors and fears, as well as um, its lack of uh, censoriousness. Like a child doesn't put up filters and say, hang on, I can't have that thought or can't imagine that thing. It's just... Yeah. So, yeah, in Schwankmeyer's films, there's never a point where he's going, well, look, hang on, we can't put that on the screen. That's not true to the surrealist method or enterprise. It's uh, all about just putting it all out there. Morality is not a, a concern. Particularly in Lunacy, it started to kind of come to life. I like... To me, his his continual focus on meat, like meat mm. seems to kind of be a signifier of life. Yeah. Um, where there's things in lunacy when th when characters have realisations and things come alive and then we have the, the sure. meat, animated meat chorus. vignette yeah. acting as a great chorus on, yeah. on these shifts. But, but the, yeah, he's particularly linked into that. But then you've got, like in his first feature, Alice, in 1988, you've got the rabbit it's been stuffed. You can constantly see the wood chips falling out of it and he keeps mm. eating them. And and trying to sew it back himself back up. Exactly, mm. yeah. And, it's, and it's, it's beautiful on just a purely aesthetic level, but it's also, I think it ties into that thing of, of, of meat and decay and atrophy and all of that. Mm. I think you know, even, that even permeates this Alice in Wonderland story. Well, uh, you know, these meat puppets, I mean, that's how he looks at human beings. That's how he looks at his actors when he's casting live action. People hmm. are just puppets to be manipulated. A lot of directors have taken that attitude to... I mean, Hitchcock and Bunuel were famously misanthropic and yeah. really didn't brook a lot of dissent from their uh, actors. You know, Schrankmeyer makes that clear when he works with people. I, they understand where he's coming from. He's, his background, before he started making film, was in puppet theatre, and it's part of the surrealist enterprise too to make very unclear the line, any borders between life and death, the living or the animate and the inanimate. 
think of all the times in Faust, for example, where the, the lead character becomes a puppet, mm-hmm. becomes a life-size marionette, perhaps is a marionette, becomes an actor on a stage within yeah. the play, within the film. And it's, it's worth mentioning, because I don't think we have yet, is that he, is, he uses a lot of stop motion and uh, pixelation, yes. which mm. is sort of the stop motion animating of actors. Yes, yes. A- animating animate objects as well as inanimate yeah. mm. ones. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's in pretty much everything he's done, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. and that's not necessarily to suggest that these things, the things that are animated, the things that are real, are of a different order of being. It's not an ontological matter. It's, a, it's just a narrative device. It's meant to blur reality and dream, the, the world of the imaginary, to the surrealist. Mm. The world uh, is not so easily divisible into these two realms. And it's just kind of unsettling to watch. Well, it's extremely too. unsettling. It, it's, it's a head-on collision with Freud's uncanny, you know, the, the sort of the thing that hovers over all of surrealist practice. And um, that's why there's so many spooky dolls in all of his um, yes. films, uh, great. from the short works through to the features. Yeah. Um, and, and why anyone is capable of turning into a doll or a puppet or... Um, and conspirators of pleasure. These, uh, this um, one of my possibly my favourite of his features. The, mm. the, all of these people f- uh, have carry fetishistic ideas of uh, how how they will um, relate to their neighbours and so on. And, and you know, two neighbours have a, a relationship with one another completely indirectly, but they each make effigies of one another mm. and mm. and uh, uh, manufacture sort of masturbation machines out of. Uh, turning their own neighbours into puppets, sort mm. of. It's such, <laughs> sort a, of. It's, it's such a John Waters film in that it's a chaste film about sex. Yeah, yeah. it's extremely... It's, but, and very sweet and innocent, but he's really oh, fascinated with... Yeah. And it gets really kind of graphic and detailed. Deeply but, perverse. Yeah. It, like, it's funny, he has this childlike aesthetic, yet all of his films are deeply adult. Yeah. Um, even Alice really plums the, the surrealism of Lewis Carroll's book yeah. you know and, and and touches on the whole sexual awakening part of it as well and, and it's just really it's it's a it's quite an unsettling piece yeah, um yeah. and faust feels a bit more playful but it's still kind of got that as you say it's always blurring those lines between between um fantasy and reality and then conspirators he really gets that um that theme back i think conspirators might be my favorite too. yeah he's uh, well, well in, in faust um one of the things i I noticed that very few filmmakers do is he's created a very, a very surreal world hmm. that the protagonist finds himself in. But w- what is interesting about it is that he starts to understand the world and he does so before we do. And so we don't have that sort of identifier after a while. That's sort of taken away from us where the way he's reacting to things is almost as weird as everything in this world. Hmm. And I'm wondering if that sort of reflects his own view, where he's not trying to introduce people into this weird world. That's just how he sees it. Oh, I think it is very much just how he sees it. Um, and he's certainly not got any sort of uh, uh, pedagogic uh, attitude. He's not trying... There's nothing evangelical about this. I mean, he calls himself a militant surrealist, but that doesn't mean that he has any ambition to somehow turn the, uh, the people, whether of the Czech Republic or the wider world, onto... Uh, his philosophy to us. I mean, back in the old days, Andre Breton, now the so-called Pope of Surrealism, really thought Surrealism was the way ahead. It was a revolutionary uh, idea that would raise the workers up, and and the whole. You know, he he had a very liberatory 
um, notion of what this his movement was all about, whereas uh, the Prague surrealists and, and Schrankmeyer in particular I think have a lot more pessimistic a view of what surrealism is all about and one much more grounded in fetishism and death <laughs> and decay yeah. and collisions with the uncanny. But also there's joy. Um, it's very playful. You, you mentioned you know, things seem very childlike. Everything's a game. A lot of these films, the scripts, have been developed in conjunction with other members of the Czech and Slovak surrealists. So they'll play games associative games, collage games, sketch games, tactile games in particular, uh, little challenges where they'll ask someone to create a, 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 a work, an artwork based on, say, a phrase and, and make a tactile artwork to correspond to it. And his love of all things tactile leads especially to conspirators of pleasure, where there's those amazing scenes of these fetishists pleasuring themselves with um, things that you can almost feel yourself really like drawing pins full of nails going up and down a body mm. I mean it's really made to try to transmit that sense of touch um, which is something very difficult for film to communicate ordinarily. yeah absolutely uh, I guess if, if you're listening and you haven't seen a spunk my film and you're not sure how to get into his work if your favorite film about parenthood is either Alien or Eraserhead, I suggest Little Otik uh. <laughs> from 2000 because it's right along those lines. Yeah. It's this horrific film about childhood or, or childbirth. Rather. Well, it's almost, I think, child raising. I think there's a real yeah. nature versus nurture thing going on. In there. And it's just it's so funny. It's like Little Shop of Horrors funny. Yeah. It's, it's uh, weird. Like, and Schmunkmeyer's work is frequently like that. Mm. I find it's all as kind of uh, giddily funny mm. and 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 sort of incongruous as it is deeply frightening. Yeah, and well, they, that all his films play with those two extremes at once. Yeah, and Little Otik really really hits that on the button. Like there's stuff in there that's both hilarious and horrific at once. You've got this giant tree creature tearing someone apart. You sort of be you know behind the scenes. Mm. It's like I don't know whether this is the most ridiculous thing <laughs> I've ever seen or the most stomach churningly. Yeah. Horrible thing. Yeah, he walks that line well. Mm. Yeah, well, seeing um, uh, Arel, there's a particular scene. Some of this seems almost throwaway because he never dwells on, on any given image. Mm. Like you'll see very briefly at the start of that film a, a child in a watermelon. Yeah. And um, you know, a little baby, an infant in a watermelon. Or later on um, mm. when Otik is being nursed. I mean, Otik, we should mention, is a log. Um, <laughs> and at this stage, just a little log. And, and mother is, is um, nursing him and uh and she's more or less in uh, a madonna pose it's it's really <laughs> deeply irreverent i mean no doubt highly sacrilegious mm. um and very very funny the thing that struck me i think was uh, partly for the kids welfare was <laughs> the start when uh the the lead male character is looking downstairs and seeing kids being served as if they were at mm. a fish market yeah it's Based, apparently based on a rather berserk Czech folktale. Yeah, it is. And that folktale is told within the story um, mm. it, uh, as a little animated um, children's book, all illustrated by Schwankmeyer's uh, most important collaborator, his wife, Eva Schwankmeyerova, who um, also illustrated any number of other uh, of his films. For example, the terrifying wall that in Pit, The Pendulum and Hope mm. yeah. that tries to push the... Um, uh, inquisitee down the pit. Um, you know, she's got a very distinctive visual style herself and was also a card-carrying surrealist. And, uh, and you see her influence all throughout his film. She designed the playing cards in Alice. Um, 
she does i think she made the mad no not maybe the hair rather than the mad hatter i think shrunk mm. made the mad hatter but uh yeah they've done a lot of work in concert and then are some other really important collaborators too especially in the earlier shorts uh the one of the great film composers Stenek Lischke who invariably composed these extraordinary scores to his films after they had been shot, mm. which seemed unbelievable when you watched them because his films are so rhythmic and Liska, Liska's beautiful orchestrations are so attuned to that. Occasionally, apparently, he'd, he'd let Schwank Mayer know he needed to drop a few frames just so he could nail the, uh, the synchronicity of the score mm. to the action and to this frenetic montage, which is often hyper-frenetic in those shorts. But then... Um, Lischke would also introduce Foley very effectively into the orchestration. So it's just uncanny at times yeah, right. how sound effects are incorporated in the score. And Lischke died about 983, unfortunately, but mm. his work is all over so much extraordinary Czech cinema of the 60s in particular. And those early Schwankmeyer films are all the more memorable for it, like Jabberwocky, um, mm. another Lewis Carroll-inspired but you know, hugely deviating from any... But, yeah, yeah, I was struggling yeah. to see any of Carol in there. More thematic, <laughs> yeah. just yeah. about you know, childhood things at play until one day the world of adulthood will mm. insist that we close the, the, the magic toy box and we'll have to move on. Mm. And uh, speaking of Schmunkmeyer Foley... <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, the sa- sound is... <laughs> oh, that rabbit, yeah. It <laughs> turns up, though, in so many of his films, yeah. that yeah. sort of effect. And that, yeah, like, well, especially with lots of eating people. Eat, yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I think sometimes these films have surprisingly good characterisation, like yeah. particularly in, in this case of Conspiracy of Pleasure. Mm. I really felt kind of a sweetness and a genuine pathos <laughs> going on with a lot of those characters. And in the case of... Um, Illiterotic as mm. well, yeah. like the mother's kind of dementia and the father's desperation and mm. what that like that yeah. is. Well, it's quite a real scenario, yeah. made absurd ultimately, but yeah, and yeah. lunacy yeah. as well. L- lunacy uh, terrific. Two thousand and five film um, that's well, it's based on two Poe books and the Marquis de Sade's writings. Oh, yes. okay, because I was yes. watching, yeah. thinking this is Marit Sade. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. what it was reminding me of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is an amazing film, and I find it really interesting because his animated asides, the tongues crawling in and out of the skulls and all yeah. that stuff, it's brilliant. But you could edit those out and still have yeah. a cohesive film, yeah. but without them you kind of miss the point of yeah. what he's going for. And, and with Schrankmeyer's own introduction at the beginning as well. Yeah. Yes. Um, which is uh, brings me to a, a not unrelated point, but uh, he appears in full frontal address to the camera mm. uh, much as if the master of ceremonies and uh, from that puppetry background I mean if you look at a lot of his films you'll see that they are presented in a very front on mm. sort of fashion in an early cinema sort of I always fashion. thought there was an Ozu type thing like no, people staring no that's at the not where he's right coming from at least yeah. it's, but he um, does that again because he that's yes. how he surviving life in yes. 2010 starts with him addressing the camera and, yeah. in a very droll fashion as well yeah, insisting yeah. that the budget couldn't stretch to having live actors for the whole duration yeah, of the yeah. film so <laughs> had to resort to photographic cutouts <laughs> as a cost savings measure and at the start of lunacy yeah. saying that art's basically dead anyway yeah. <laughs> yeah. this is not art this is a horror film but through so many of his films uh, there's theatrical events within the film there might be Punch and uh, Judy early on these mm. little puppets I mean these are puppet shows even when he's dealing with actors I th- he really does still consider them to be puppet shows he's not after any sort of flashy camera work even no. though the films are so full of virtuosic displays of 
animation as well. The staging of these things is frequently mind-boggling, but it's never just for the sake of an, a nice visual or a pretty shot. And his camera and lighting craft mm -hmm. is kind of fairly utilitarian. Yeah, because you know? it's, it's, it's really not what he's interested yeah. in. It's, um, it's all about the truth, yeah. even though that truth is not truth as we know it in our everyday Workaday lives. It's the it was the surreality. It's the beyond the reality. And there's so much going on on screen. And as you say, his editing is often so frenetic, well, the, but not it, in a discord. Like it, it's in a perfectly discordant way. Yeah, not in a it's, it's an very way. kinetic, um, very frenetic, and very musical, very rhythmic. Mm. Um, but, and then just sometimes there are so many objects running amok on screen at any given time. Some of those earlier animations, mm. in particular. I mean, for all that, he will insist that that's not that he's not about some sort of virtuosic display as a uh, priority. These films are mind-boggling to even conceive of their undertaking. Yeah, frequently. Oh, just yeah. staggering. But um, yeah, I mean, just why for, you know, one of the reasons he's such a fixture, of, uh, a figure of absolute fascination and love for me because they're so richly rewarding to rewatch these. You'll never see them the same way twice. It's just yeah. not possible. Blink yeah. and you'll have missed something. Well, I've seen Alice like three times and Lunacy twice. And yeah, yeah they, they do take on completely different modes yeah. the next time. You it's funny. It. Lunacy is probably his straightest film to date. Like you take those those animations out of it, it's mm. it, it follows a fairly conventional kind of sure. paranoid yeah. thriller slash satire type yeah. um, grand, few... grand guignol style yeah. uh, sort of narrative. With a few fun anachronisms thrown in. Just you know, now, I think there's some odd vehicles. Just, you know, there's all yeah. sorts of odd little, yeah, remotely, not remotely period consistent details thrown <laughs> in for just a laugh. It has a 70s ishness about it for me. All those Sadian films of that period, there's mm. tons of them. Jess Franco made at least 100 himself yeah, yeah, around yeah, that yeah, time. Yeah. But um, that and Conspirators of Pleasure, for example, he both originally scripted in the 70s. Right. Oh right, yeah, and of course could never make them for the you know, for the longest time. Right, gee, but, every yeah. feature's an effort, isn't it? Like there's yeah. five years in between most of them, and he's written them decades earlier. Yeah, often yeah. such monumental works yeah. each one. Yeah, even Conspirators of Pleasure, which has next to no dialogue, mm. even that still took twenty odd years to bring to the screen. Yeah, I was a bit worried when I I got a copy of that. I thought, oh, there's no subtitles. What's going on? Yeah. Oh, there's actually no dialogue. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you become quite connected to the character, mm. the lead character in the end, and his plight um, yeah. of possibly being stuck in this mad place and being manipulated at every turn. Mm. But again, has this point about you know, are the inmates running the asylum, and if the inmates aren't running the asylum, are the the authorities who are running it any better? Yeah, um, or just a new yeah. form of inmate? Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. The, the line is completely blurred there, and I I love that about it. Yeah, and the question is: is is it is absolute control any better or worse than absolute chaos? Mm. From someone who's lived in a, a country where absolute control or near to absolute control was a, a given, you know, these are always interesting questions. There are, there are so many people constantly being stymied. These protagonists are always running up against ludicrous obstacles. A wonderful early short of was called The Flat, where a, a man just finds his way into a house and everything around him crumbles by degrees. He tries to eat a meal and uh, his cutlery fails him. Everything fails. Mm. Uh, a, a boxing glove mysteriously appears in the wall and punches him. <laughs> um, a bed he lies on crumbles to dust mm. around him. You know, everything is just doomed to yeah. fail. Any any hint of better times immediately uh, just vanishes uh, in the cruelest ways. Yeah. Mm. And that hasn't changed with the revolution. You know, 20 plus years ago, 
Czech, Slovakia. Um, yeah, he immediately made a film called The Death of Stalinism in Bohemia, which offered absolutely no optimism <laughs> for life beyond totalitarianism. It just said, no, nope, it's just, okay, a different regime, different structure, same consequences. Mm. I like that he does go for some very, not base humour, but he's not, you know, a, that punching out of the wall, like mm. a boxing glove punching on the wall. And the Freud and Jung, the portraits <laughs> of him in, yeah. in Surviving Life, just fighting in the middle yeah. of therapy sessions. Yeah. Just, it's, re, it's genuinely funny stuff. And Surviving Life is, I don't know, probably his funniest film. It's a lot funnier than A Dangerous Method. Exactly, right, yeah. It plays that little... Uh, um, rivalry out in a much more humorous and unexpected sort of a and way. Exactly. Yeah. Him and his wife licking each other with those enormous tongues. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. So, so life is very is very funny. Um, I think it's one that's probably be better appreciated with time as well. I found that with almost all of his films, mm. and the more I've immersed myself in his world, the more that those films seriously you know, really feed off each other. Mm. I guess that's the case with a lot of filmmakers. You get used to their motifs and intrigued by them and then get a kick out of recognising them when you review yeah, an older yeah. one. But his films are so abundantly uh, rich with particular uh, imagery that recurs and certainly a, a sensibility. But because I've become this uh, insane Czechophile in recent times too, the more I learn about that country, the more I visit it and... Uh, the more that informs my appreciation of his films too, mm. I have to say, and it, it enriches it considerably as well. There's a lot that um, that visiting that place helps me better understand where he's coming from because there's a lot that's still perfectly Kafkaesque about <laughs> the Czech Republic to this day. And his next film is going to have clear elements of Kafka's metamorphosis in it. Right. Which um, is called, the working title is Insects. Insects, I think, which is, uh, I think it's more particularly an adaptation of works by Karol Czarpek, who's... I never uh, thought of uh, it before, but yeah. Sungmar is the perfect person mm. to adapt metamorphosis. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. It almost seems yeah. like it was written for him. Yeah. yeah. He often adapts from fairly kind of lauded sources, like Alice in Wonderland or Poe and mm. Marquis de Sade or The Folktale yeah. or uh, Faust... The yeah. Goethe yeah. and Marlowe's play. Yeah, um, well, too interesting with Alice and Faust. Alice, the full title in Czech is Alice or something from Alice. So it's not right. ever pretending to be Alice. It's not telling Alice in Wonderland as such. Yeah. It's you know, inspired by. And yet it feels like it is. Yeah, sort of. You know? like it's so it, true. It totally yeah. gets the mood. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And Faust's title in Czech is Lesson of Faust. <laughs> so it's not trying to be Faust. It's, yeah. 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 So um, we're meant to learn something from what they <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, well, uh, Insects is due out apparently in 2015, in which Spike will be 81, Yeah, possibly his last film, or if, seeing they're all five years apart, he'd be mm. uh, 86 when I the next one's up and running. I think, could you think see him continuing. There's yeah, an eight. Well, there's no way he would ever stop making art of some yeah. sort. Yeah. yeah, I cannot see him slowing down. Well, I can see him slowing down, but I can never see him giving up yeah. because mm. it's just not his way. He's in this for the long haul he's a surrealist you know you don't it's not a day job it's not a it's not a court it's not something you retire from it's not something you draw a pension from it's a vocation it's a it's life yeah the universe it's everything and on that note cerise thank you very much for joining us oh a great pleasure thank you for having me thank you so much and we'll see you the rest of you next month and may your checks not bounce <laughs>